Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guys who explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Sharon Romeo. She holds a PhD in American Studies from the University of Iowa and is presently an associate professor in the Department of History, Classics, and Religion at the University of Alberta. She's the author of Gender and the Jubilee, Black Freedom and the Reconstruction of Citizenship in Civil War, Missouri. Welcome to our Missouri, Sharon. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, to begin with, let's go back to the origins of this, of this project and this book. Tell us about the, the beginnings, how this book came to be. Well, the book came to be in a roundabout manner. I was studying at the University of Iowa with Linda Kerber and Leslie Schwalm. And Linda, of course, is, you know, some people have called her the mother of, of women's history, the mother of U.S. women's history, along with Gerda Lerner. And Leslie um, works on the history of slavery, reconstruction. Her first book is on South Carolina and later on Midwestern um, migration of African-American populations, many of them from Missouri to Illinois and Iowa. But originally starting out, I was coming from a question of how had the status of women um, changed during the period of, of the Civil War and Reconstruction. And I, I was also interested in the legal aspects of how certain behaviors had become criminalized or decriminalized and how the legal system was changing. In particular, I was interested in prostitution, bigamy, adultery, and seduction. In uh, St. Louis, you know, in the years 1850s, 1860s, the district attorney um, becomes a formal position. Things like bigamy and adultery, the statute begins to change and it becomes prosecuted in different ways, um, particularly once you have um, the shift from the older system where much more people are going much more informally to justice of the peace and um, doing complaints. Once you get the professionalization of the legal system with the district attorney um, being a paid position, you know, the, the practices of prosecution change. So I was looking in St. Louis um, at, these, at these various um, aspects. So adultery, for example, people, there's, there's a real big uptick in prosecution of adultery, partly because wives are going and complaining. And then there's these criminal prosecutions and they're complaining about their husbands. 
and, and um, this actually happens to the point that they decide to adjust how the criminal prosecution is happening because there's too many prosecutions in this court system. So, so this is this was where I was starting from. And St. Louis drew my attention um, also particularly because there's a legalization for a while of prostitution in you know the era after immediately after the Civil War era. So I, I was looking at this, um, but I wanted to find a way to think about how slavery and emancipation in particularly is changing the legal system. So that was one of the central ways of thinking about it I was very interested in. And I'd come across a seduction statute in Missouri. Now, seduction, I, I don't know if people are aware of um, the civil and criminal history of seduction, but it, this is a very interesting crime. And it starts out in colonial North America and later on the United States as a civil action. And particularly, you know, if unmarried women um, still living in their father's house are impregnated by someone, then the father often could, you know, have a, a civil um, case against the man that impregnated her. So it shifts, though, during this time um, in, the, in the 19th century to, um, from a civil to criminal action. Um, and the person bringing the case is no longer the father complaining, but the district attorney. And the um, victim is no longer seen as the father uh, needing to recoup money to take care of the child, but it's seen as the woman herself. So then there's all these very interesting and changing definitions of who can be seduced. Um, and, you know, so in Iowa, it ends up being, you know, it needs, by the time you get to the 1870s, a woman who is, you know, innocent and pure of heart. You know? In Missouri, the seduction statute says the woman has to be a white woman to be seduced. And so that, along with what was happening with legal prostitution, got me more interested in Missouri as a, as a site to investigate it. So I'm, I'm, gener I'm, I'm looking at all of these legal cases, and I'm trying to figure out ways to more thoroughly understand how slavery and emancipation changed the legal system um, during this time period and also change the social system, the cultural system. So I'm drawn to the Civil War pensions, um, particularly Leslie Schwalm is, is advising me, go look at the Civil War pensions in the National Archives. They're, they're a fabulous primary resource. So I, I investigated the Civil War pensions and the Civil War pensions from the Civil War, from um, the African-American men who um, enlisted from Missouri, um, something that you find is um, contestations over who is entitled to the Civil War pension. And one thing that occurred quite a bit was multiple people saying they were the wives. And of course, under slavery, there's no legal marriage. So um, you have a situation of where the pension investigators need to define legally who is the legal wife. And then in their interpretation, under what situation is it not a legal marriage? And of course, um, you know, I'm interested in how these legal definitions get developed, only this way it's getting developed in a bureaucratic 
um, way through the pension investigator. So I found numerous investigations, you know, numerous contestations where the pension investigator is trying to figure this out. And he, he, in many situations, will go back to the neighborhood and interview a lot of formerly enslaved people. And it generated a huge amount of very interesting information about what was happening during the Civil War and during emancipation and how emancipation in many ways is being self-directed, you know, the, you know, the actions of, of um, enslaved people themselves. Um, so I got interested in that. And I also got interested in the provost marshals and the provost marshal records um, because um, enslaved people were going to provost marshals on the ground, you know, as, as a way to uh, circumvent slavery and the oppressions of slavery. And while I was looking at all of this material, first of all, the pensions were just a wealth of material. Um, and I felt like I couldn't ignore the evidence that I was seeing in them, um, that it really needed to be written about what was being revealed in them. I was seeing so many interesting stories of enslaved women who were engaging in all sorts of really heroic actions you know, during the war, you know, to manifest, you know, their own liberty, um, to try to circumvent the oppressions of slavery. I've seen all sorts of things from individuals and, you know, communities, the slave community, that I felt like it had to be written about. And in the Provost Marshall records, I came across um, a particularly interesting statement with a Provost Marshall in St. Louis writing you know, that an enslaved woman had come to him to make a complaint. And when I read that, I, I realized I needed to change my dissertation. This was, this was originally, you know, this was my first, my first project in graduate school. And I realized that I couldn't do my original idea for the dissertation and give this primary evidence justice. So I started concentrating on what was happening in the pensions and in the provost marshal material and just following this new, this new research that I was seeing. Um, and the more I read the provost marshal material, the more I was seeing that enslaved people were coming into the provost marshal office, you know, to make complaints while they were enslaved, um, you know, making use of this, you know, this military legal office to enact, you know, emancipation. Um, and so I, I, I changed the dissertation and just followed, followed the sources <laughs> um, and, and adjusted my focus from, from these, the former interest, you know, interest in, in these, these crimes that were happening, you know, these state crimes to what was happening in the military legal system. So that's how, <laughs> that was the origins of the book project. Now you talked a little bit about the Provost Marshall records and, and certainly the importance of them. What source materials and archives and even, even historical sites are did you visit as you were working towards the completion of the project, both as a dissertation and later as a book? Well, first, um, I have to say how incredibly helpful Michael Everman was 
at the St. Louis court project. He, you know, he had helped organize the freedom suits. Um, he'd really been in charge of organizing the freedom suits at that project and has done a heroic job in organizing so many primary sources from, you know, at that site. And he's now retired, but I could not have done this project without him. He directed me to so many um, interesting sources. There are, um, at that project, there's uh, civil cases with African-American women suing the railroads and the streetcars. There's um, minutes um, on what's happening during the Civil War. There's county minutes that's happening. There's licensing records for um, African-American um, residents of St. Louis at the B. Their African-American residents were required to register in St. Louis before the war and even during the war. Um, during this time period, immediately before the war in the 1850s, there's a system in which African-Americans are being increasingly surveilled and patrolled in St. Louis. People have to get a license to reside in the city. And if, if they don't have this license, they're vulnerable to being criminally punished and driven out of the city. The punishment is severe. It's um, being whipped and then driven out of the city. Going into the beginning of the Civil War, you see people increasingly come in to get these licenses because there's fear that, you know, with um, the Confederate governor and the increased tensions, um, that there's going to be increased patrolling. Uh, so, so you can find um, lists of people who have gone in and gotten these licenses. When people do this, they have to establish themselves as um, citizens of the state of Missouri. And something that's important to understand is that before the Civil War, state citizenship has a much different meaning than it's going to have after the Civil War. So state citizenship is particularly important for having the freedom you know, the, the right to be able to reside in a state. And there are black laws before the Civil War in areas like the Midwest that are expelling African-American free populations um, if they're not able to establish um, state citizenship. And in some situations, one has to establish that they're born in the state or there's other requirements such as that. Now, after the Civil War, national citizenship takes on a completely different meaning, a meaning that really doesn't, it, it doesn't have um, in the same way before the Civil War. And of course, you know, the changes to the Constitution with, you know, the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, um, you know, is a, plays a huge role in establishing this, um, this concept and creating new meaning with the 14th Amendment to national citizenship. So looking at the licensing records are a really interesting way to, to explore um, some of the racial oppression that's, that's happening during this time to the free populations before the war. The Civil War um, pensions are a wonderful resource and they're housed at the National Archives in Washington, DC for this time period. And I would recommend them to anybody who is interested in studying this time period. 
the pensions have just a wealth of material um, in them, material you would not expect to show up. You know, it's not just about what the medical records are of the soldiers. I found pictures of soldiers, um, you know, fo in photographs. I found letters. I found extensive interviews of um, people living who were formerly enslaved people, recounting what their lives were like before and during the Civil War. There's just an extensive, it, it's just an extensive wealth of research that I would advise people to look at if they're interested in this, in this time period. So those were some of the sources that were particularly helpful. And of course, the Provost Marshall sources were wonderfully helpful. And I could not, you know, have written this book without him. You touched on citizenship there um, as you were talking about some of that source material and, and kind of the, the defining of it, both pre and post Civil War. And part of your book title, obviously, is discussing, you know, Black freedom and the reconstruction of citizenship in Civil War Missouri. So how have scholars interpreted this term of citizenship and, and how do you define it on your own? There's a variety of ways that citizenship can be, can be interpreted and theorized. And it's certainly a contested term, you know, on multiple levels. Um, one way to interpret citizenship or to investigate it is to see it as the sovereign reaction of individuals who is um, included in that legal definition. But that doesn't necessarily answer the question of how we define citizenship in a more capacious understanding of the term. What does citizenship mean on a daily level? Is one a second-class citizen if they are being asked to drink from a different water fountain? If they are not allowed into a movie theater? If they are being told to sit in a different place in a movie theater, if they are being told to um, sit in a second class car on a train, how, how do we see citizenship in, you know, from that sense? Um, can we, you know, what, how do we think about this? So one, another way to think about citizenship is to think about access. Who has access to different fields? Um, who has access to transportation? Who has access to, say, just the ability to walk around a city and not be arrested by a policeman or be forced to show one's papers um, that one is licensed in the state, for example? You know, who is allowed to reside in that state and who was expelled from the state um, because of their color? So this, this is another way to think about it, access to markets, access to social institutions, access to public space. And people like Kathleen Canning have, have argued that citizenship forms its meaning through daily social contestations, you know, in these various arenas. And then other scholars like Isaac West has suggested there might we might even um, look at it from a question of cultural citizenship. You know, can citizenship be something that's a performance? Um, can we have performances of civic identities? And one way to think about cultural citizenship, you know, would be to say, well, 
we look at, say, borders between states, someone might have quite a bit in common with someone right across the national border through language, um, through cultural practices, through music. You know, is this another way we can think about citizenship? And if we're thinking about citizenship as a question of belonging, this is how I would think about citizenship is that our social practices, which people engage in, in which people, I would agree with Kathleen Canning, in which people are testing their rights and obligations. And that as people do this, it changes the meanings of what they, uh, you know, of what their status is in terms of legal status, that their social, these social contestations can actually change legal definitions. So someone who is asserting that they are a lady and in 1866, as a lady, they're entitled to sit down on, you know, on the inside of the streetcar, even though they are not a white individual. This, this individual is, you know, is pushing back on, you know, a social practice to essentially establish that they have um, a legal right to sit in a streetcar. And then reactions to that are helping to either, you know, undermine that claim or affirm that claim. Um, so, you know, do people in the streetcar allow her to sit in the streetcar? If she is assaulted and tossed off their streetcar, what is the legal reaction to that? You know, so these, you know, the, the reaction to that is, is also affirming or undermining the claims that she's making. Um, so these just sort of daily contestations help to form people's legal rights. Um, another way to think about it is somebody's right to walk in public space. Um, who's allowed to walk down the street and not be questioned by police. One of the reasons I became interested in this question um, was looking at questions of prostitution in New York during the antebellum era. You know, certain women were questioned if they were walking alone um, or their ability to just be in public was questioned. So, you know, that's, um, that's one way to broaden, you know, this understanding that we have one section of the book that kind of caught my eye early on towards the beginning is when you mention that Reconstruction began arguably in Missouri in 1861. Think of it, and then mm -hmm. since 1865 into the 1870s. Why 1861? What brought you to that conclusion? Now, this isn't a large argument I have, <laughs> so I'm not particularly wedded to it. But one way to think about it is um, there's debates about when did Reconstruction begin? Um, and really, in uh, many ways, that's about how we define Reconstruction. You know, so, so how do we want to define um, Reconstruction as a word? And, and, and off, you know, we can look at it from, a very, you know, from the point of view of when does presidential Reconstruction start? When does congressional Reconstruction start? Another way to think about Reconstruction is at what point does the Union military establish itself in the state and, you know, begin, you know, establishing um, certain degrees of Union occupation. 
very early on in the war, you know, Nathaniel Lyon demands that the Confederates get out of St. Louis, holds um, the arsenal for the Union, and the military begins to establish certain practices, such as putting, you know, holding civilians in, uh, you know, in military jails. Um, the provost marshals slowly begin to uh, encroach on the realm of slavery. So really before it's legal to do so, you see the military justice system getting involved. So before the Freedom Bureau is established, you have essentially the provost marshal acting as this very early Freedom Bureau. This is just something that is happening on the ground. So one way we've thought about reconstruction in the past is reconstruction as a top-down situation that begins in the Congress or begins with the president um, and then travel, you know, and then is, is something that is imposed from that, that point of view. But what I was seeing in the records was African-Americans going to the provost marshals with complaints and then the provost marshals having to sort of decide on the fly what to do with the situation and then making a decision, not necessarily based on whether it's, you know, uh, coming down from on high or not. So for example, there's a situation where an enslaved woman goes to the provost marshal and her mother is sick and she wants to be able to visit her mother. Um, and the provost marshal um, essentially gives a military directive to the slave owner, essentially saying that you must allow her to visit her mother once a week. So the military um, justice system is interfering with the institution of slavery, and there's not a justification at all from this point that this is an disloyal family, a disloyal Confederate sympathizing family. This is not legal under the first or second confiscation acts. This is just the military justice official saying this is what's going to happen um, and, and essentially doing an action that is similar to the type of action that the Freedom Bureau later on will be doing when they attempt to resolve complaints between the newly freed people and former populations of slaveholders. So, so I thought this is, this, you know, I, I'm seeing this happen on this lower level um, and it's, it's not happening in relation to the first and second confiscation act. It's not happening in relation to Lincoln declaring or not declaring habeas corpus suspended. This, this is, you know, I mean, at least in the sense of, of, of what's happening with the institution of slavery itself. So from that perspective, um, I'm saying something, the things that we identify with Reconstruction, such as, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau, this is happening with the military justice system. And it's happening because African-Americans themselves are going into the provost marshal's office and making claims, making claims that don't correlate to any statute there's no legal statute that says an enslaved woman should be able to visit her mother, you know, that that's, that that's some sort of legal right. 
um, yet they're establishing it as something that they are able to do in that situation. So this is all happening on an ad hoc basis. It's all just contingent on whether that provost marshal makes that decision or not. So the sympathies of a particular provost marshal make a big difference. And, um, and I noticed one, one provost marshal um, in particular had fought in Kansas and had Kansas origins. Um, and I'm sure that that would make a big difference versus someone who perhaps might have been raised in Missouri. But the question is, is this not, are the boundaries of reconstruction you know, are they more fuzzy than we've seen them or than we've thought of them in the past? And what is the role of the military justice system in establishing practices that we see in the era we call reconstruction fairly early on in the war? In thinking about emancipation in the Civil War era, how did that compare or even differ or did it uh, from these earlier freedom suits happening in the you know, 1840s, 1850s? I mean, I think um, there's a couple of different ways to, to think about that. The first would be what does, what, what, what does freedom mean, um, legal freedom mean to the discrete individuals? The a freedom suit clearly establishes at the, at the end of it, if, if that person is free or not. Um, so if, if that person gains their freedom, um, they are clearly a free individual. Under the first and second confiscation acts, the particular legal definition is different. It's that the, the, the person is confiscated, um, is, is essentially a contraband, um, is the specific definition. So the person is literally still, still seen as, as property or defined legally as property under, under the, the confiscation acts. However, in practice, what is happening is that um, when people gain their individual emancipation under the first and second confiscation acts in practice is what is happening is that that person is being treated as a free individual in terms of in Missouri when you see people say who have um, migrated to St. Louis or you know are freed under the confiscation um, they are being given free papers um, and and going to be in an individual sense treated as the same way as a person who was freed under the freedom suits. I think the, the large difference is that the process of emancipation during the Civil War is this incredibly revolutionary and disruptive experience for the society and legal system of slave states. It's challenging the legal system, it's challenging the social system, it's challenging the cultural system, um, it's challenging the political system. It is an incredible upheaval. Whereas for the legal freedom suits, in some ways, a legal freedom suit could be seen to, before the Civil War, could be seen as a way of 
affirming the boundaries of slavery. So these, these suits are essentially defining this person has the right to be free. But at the same time, these suits are also defining other people are still enslaved. And that if one doesn't have the particular legal issues that are causing that individual to be free, one does not have the right you know, to be free. In the process of emancipation, what you see is larger and larger definitions of who has the right who has the right to be free under the first and second confiscation acts and the enslaved population themselves are able to push those definitions and make those definitions wider and wider so under the first and second confiscation acts um, you know the questions under the first act are you know who is actually involved who has been involved by the confederate military you know in aiding say someone who has used the enslaved population to dig trenches in aid of the confederate side you know those people would clearly apply under the first confiscation act but what you see in practice is that the enslaved population themselves are actively pushing to enlarge that definition of who can be freed under the first confiscation act and as people run to union lines and as union officers lieutenants um, you know captains you know are are having people come into their lines offering to work for the union cause they are also stretching definitions of you know who can be who can be involved and in many cases illegally allowing people to flee with them you know even though they may not be you know strictly you know, uh, qualifying under the first confiscation act and under the second confiscation act, um, this really blows, you know, starts really blowing the definition quite open. And so it becomes, you know, so you're seeing the social process happen of people pushing, you know, the definitions of who can be, um, who can qualify for these free papers, you know, more and more easily. And you see, again, ad hoc things happening on the ground, you know, that don't necessarily conform to what the strict legal definitions are. So it, it, it's a very different environment that you see, you know, that you see the freedom papers being given out um, under the first and second confiscation acts. You, you see much more casual actions, you know, running to when you when union troops are in various, you know, areas of Missouri, you see people running to union troops to union camps, you see people traveling with the army. And so this, this is, it's a much more disruptive and fluid situation. But something that was very interesting to me and, and something I was aware of, but certainly was appreciating the, the context and the additional information, you know, the, the idea of getting to freedom for enslaved people, you know, getting to those union lines, those military lines, how the U.S. military evolved in their approach. You talked about the confiscation acts, uh, but, but I appreciate a, a little bit of talking about, you know, how that response to those enslaved people differed by their gender and, you know, between men, women, even children in terms of how the military responded their, to their arrival in their camps. Right, right. I, I mean, and, and this is quite interesting, right? Of course, you know, how, 
you know, how the military responded. And it, 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 there's a variety of different responses and the responses do not necessarily conform to what is legal. So the first thing is that you have what is legal. Um, under the first confiscation act, um, enslaved people can qualify as contrabands um, if that individual themselves has been employed in supporting the Confederate cause. So it, it, uh, the classic definition would be um, an enslaved man who dug trenches, dug Confederate trenches, for example. That's a clear, a clear qualification under the first Confiscation Act. Um, under the second Confiscation Act, um, it becomes a bit, the, the definition becomes much wider. Um, the second Confiscation Act, you know, if the slave master or mistress, if they themselves are disloyal, then all of their property, all of their enslaved property can be confiscated. And that definition allows for people to come to provost marshals and say things such as, you know, oh, my master said hurrah for Jeff Davis. My, my mistress voiced, you know, some sympathies for the Confederate cause. You know, that, that gets to the point where that would qualify for freedom. So, so first we have those, though, that's the, what's happening legally. Now what's happening legally is not necessarily what's happening on the ground. Quite early on in the war, people start trying to escape, going to union lines, um, and whether they're accepted or not really will depend on the military people who were in charge. So we see um, some Kansas troops, for example, who will cross the border, you know, um, and are very sympathetic <laughs> to the enslaved population. Um, and you see people actively, you know, troops, Kansas troops that, you know, actively have, you know, helped people escape. So there was one instance where some troops came up to, you know, a house and, and essentially asked, like, who wants to be free? And, you know, helped people get into the carriage and <laughs> drove, drove away. Now, this is not legal at this point. Um, and there are, you, you find military people on the ground writing letters about what to do. You know, what, what do I do? I, I have people coming to my camp. What, what should I do with them? You know, should I, do I, do I need to give them back to the slaveholder? You actually see this all throughout the war. The earlier it is in the war, the more likely it is for people to be given back. Um, but you do see situations where people were happy to have extra labor, you know, people to, you know, assist with, with the military labor that needs to be done. These are, you know, people are coming to the camp you know, offering to, to work. Of course, people who are healthy and male and able to do harder labor and keep up with the marching are much more likely to be accepted. Children, older people, you know, rarely would try to do this route because, um, you know, just because keeping up with, with the march, keeping up with the army. So you're much more likely to see single younger men at this point, you know, escaping. As you go through the war, you're much more likely to see women and children attempting to go to 
union lines, really women, younger women more than more than children. Children and older people are the least likely to attempt this because just keeping up on the march and being able to do that um, is, is just not less likely to be accepted in union lines and also the danger with union lines. You don't wanna be left behind on a march. One thing I did see that was quite interesting is that I think there would be some question as to reputation for women if they followed the army. There, there was a contested civil war pension and um, someone was talking about a woman who had joined union lines and um, was very condescending to them saying, you know, well, what would you think of a woman who followed the army? So I think we, we might speculate that, that there might be um, some social criticism, you know, from um, even the enslaved community themselves, if a single woman was doing this on her own. Then again, it's, it's hard to say what the various responses were. There is one instance of a, of a Civil War pension where a woman was quoted as saying she, she, was, she was being interviewed and she said that her master was being tricky and so she left and ended up going to St. Louis. It's unclear how she got to St. Louis, but uh, and it's it's unclear what her master being tricky meant. Um, but she was a younger woman in her early twenties, and you know chose that moment to escape. So I think that earlier in the war, escaping to Union lines, you do see a gender difference in who is able to um, escape and travel with Union lines. And as we get more and more into the war, and after the Second Confiscation Act. Um, provost marshals locally are able to give freedom papers through the Second Confiscation Act. And so people don't need to follow union lines in the same way. They don't need to escape from their locales in the same way. You also will see large groups of people later on in the war migrating to different places. There is one instance in a Civil War pension where they were talking about a larger group of, from an enslaved community traveling, you know, after the Confiscation Act, the Second Confiscation Act, and one of the men was was playing on a fiddle, and it was as people walked along, there were, there was celebration um, happening. So what it sounded like was, you know, a large group of older people and younger people, you know, leaving at the same time. But I'm speculating that it wasn't clear where they were headed to. And this was quite far along in the war, I think, 1864. And so as, as emancipation, um, as the process of emancipation really takes hold, and there's more and more disruption in various places, it looks like this was a situation where a whole community is is traveling but i would speculate for that type of situation it wouldn't be a you know it's much less likely to be a longer situation you know a longer travel because earlier in the war when when you're seeing people escape and come to st louis you're seeing some people who you know arrive with frostbit toes you know that that are, are getting to the city um 
you know, under harsh conditions. And this is a situation where if one is young and an able-bodied, you're much more likely to make it um, than if you're older or if you have, you know, if you're if you're less likely, if you're less able to travel in particular. So it's just more difficult, um, the less able-bodied people are to be able to go to a place where one is more likely to find emancipation. So thinking about the Civil War era and enslaved people and even people who have gained their freedom, um, how are they utilizing state authority, federal government, military courts to not only for those who have not yet gained freedom, gain their freedom, but also to you know, attain and secure basic rights as citizens? Well, the, the provost marshal court becomes a place where people go to seek justice. And it, it really acts as an early Freedmen's Bureau before the establishment of the Freedmen's Bureau. So people are going into courts for labor actions, um, you know, to be paid for their labor. Women particularly um, are going to courts to in search of their children. It, you know, I was particularly seeing that happen quite often. Children that are still being held either as, um, as slaves or indentured servants, essentially. And so being able to reunite with their children and free their children. Women are also going into courts to complain about assaults. And one thing to remember is that, of course, under slavery, these assaults are legal. Um, and now women are able to go into provost martial courts and complain about these, consult, these assaults. And in some cases, when they find sympathetic provost marshals, the provost marshals acting on these complaints. And so people themselves, the complainants, are redefining what is acceptable, what is, you know, what can be prohibited by the military court oversight. So because, um, people of color under Missouri law are not able to complain in court as a witness against a white person. Um, so you have this, this black law in place that um, under the court system, people are not, you know, African-Americans are not able to act as witnesses to complain either in a civil suit or a criminal suit. So people are now able to go to the military justice office um, and establish these complaints. Um, uh, you know, um, if certain officers are listening to them and acting on them. Um, and so before the Freedmen's Bureau has been established, these actions that we see in the Freedmen's Bureau are taking place. Um, and that's, you know, we might want to rethink um, how the Freedmen's Bureau gets established from that sense, that if we are seeing people go into the provost marshal's office and complain about things that are later being dealt with and from the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, we should think about the role of African-Americans themselves in establishing the precedent for the Freedmen's Bureau because these actions are already taking place in the military provost courts in certain situations. So it's not formalized under the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, and yet people are taking the opportunity to, uh, to establish this and then 
provost marshals are then responding to those complaints. Um, and so even though there's no law that um, has been put in place to say an African-American woman, uh, what, what are her rights in this situation? You know, we don't, this is before the 14th amendment has happened. This is, you know, it, it has not, it's not clear what, you know, African-Americans in this situation may be free, but it has not been established that they are citizens. Um, and so the people themselves are pushing for um, these rights um, in the military courts and establishing them, you know, just through these everyday contestations. And then on the ground, there are officers that are recognizing these complaints and acting on them. Finally, let's talk about some of the projects you're working on right now. What's on the horizon for you in your research? There's two things I'm working on in, in Missouri. One was, is what's happening with the legal changes in the 1850s and 60s with some of these, how the court system, how the criminal court system is handling prostitution, bigamy, adultery, and seduction. Um, that's a general question that I had since my dissertation. And so there's some small projects I'm working on with that. The other large project I'm working on is hundreds of African-Americans migrated from California to Victoria, British Columbia, 1950s. It wasn't clear at that point whether California was going to expel the free African-American population. The legislature got actually quite close to, to doing that. And a large amount of the African-American population, a large portion, decides to migrate to Victoria, British Columbia. And the provincial governor there, the colonial governor, actually invites people up and, and sends a letter with a captain that was read in an African Methodist Episcopal church in California um, that says that people are going to be able to buy property and they will be able to nationalize as British citizens and vote and that the churches will be integrated. So Victoria, British Columbia is rather small at this point. And so they make up a rather large portion of the, the colonial population when they arrive. And then there's civil rights actions of integrating the churches and integrating the theaters that happen um, in, in British Columbia. After the Civil War is and after the 14th Amendment, um, a large portion of the population will migrate back to, to the United States. So that's the, the other large project I'm looking at right now. That sounds really fascinating. I look, I look forward to it. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Sharon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.